Welcome to the FIFRA 3030 webinar on pesticide advertising. So what can you say? Today's session is part two, where we address non-labeling advertising. So I'm Mike Novak, partner at Keller & Heckman, co-chair of the Pesticide Practice Group. I've got uh, John Gustafson, an associate here with me. Hello, everybody. So John was on our second webinar, and I thought that went really well. Our goal today is to keep this within uh, 30 minutes and to give you simple and straightforward, useful advice on what you can say in advertising. And so maybe unlike last month where we went a little long um, and talked about the label and labeling, this month, part two, we're going to tackle other advertising. So this is anything that's not a label or labeling um, that you're making claims on for your pesticide product. Um, so it, it, it's what we refer to as non-labeling. So that would include websites, television, radio, etc. And we'll, we'll get into the specifics. Okay, on today's agenda, we're going to start out by recapping part one on labels and labeling. We're then going to talk about EPA's authority to regulate non-labeling, and their authority is weaker for non-regulating non-labeling than it is for labels and labeling. And then we're going to talk about what we can say on uh non-labeling and in non-labeling advertisements. And uh, this is important because registrants arguably have more latitude uh, in non-labeling than labels and labeling. That's right. So that's one of the reasons that you need to keep in your, you know, separate the two buckets, labeling and non-labeling. Because uh, the EPA authority to regulate labeling much stronger um, than uh, than their authority over non-labeling, and you know the FTC, you know, so if we recap part one, we talked a little bit about EPA and FTC authority, and EPA is the the agency that um, has strong authority to regulate the label and labeling, so they approve claims. On the label, the FTC will consider, FTC regulates all advertising, including the label and labeling, you know, and non-labeling. And they will consider claims approved on the EPA label as uh, not false or misleading. There's a rebuttable presumption that if EPA has approved it, you know, the FTC is going to presume that it's substantiated uh, and lawful. So the FTC has weaker authority over the label and labeling. And what the takeaway messages from part one were, um, you know, and the question was, well, what can we say on the label and what can we say on labeling? For the label, you can make claims that are identical to a claims proved on your master label. So that's what you put on your, your label, te the text on your label. There are some minor exceptions that we talked about. You know, PR Notice 9810 includes non-notifications. And then there's a little wiggle room with respect to fonts 
and, you know, placement, uh, the order of text uh, for the commercial label vis-a-vis the master label. But otherwise, the claim must be verbatim from the master label. Labeling is a broader term. So labeling, you know, what accompanies the um, the product in commerce would include the SDS, you know, your point of sale materials. And claims there don't have to be verbatim from the master label. They can include lawful paraphrases, but that lawful paraphrase cannot be false or misleading, and it also can't be a claim that constitutes or that would be considered to be substantially different, which is, you know, the uh, the standard that we're going to talk about today for non-labeling. But just to give an example for part one of the lawful paraphrase on labeling. So if our label includes an approved claim by EPA, no harsh chemical odor or fumes. That's on our master label. It's part of the marketing statements approved on the master label. We can put that claim on our label, our commercial label, but it's got to be verbatim. Now, labeling includes materials that accompany the product, such as you know, your point-of-sale materials, maybe you have a poster. And if you have an approved claim that says no harsh chemical odor or fumes, you could likely make a lawful paraphrase of that on your poster at point-of-sale and just say, doesn't smell unpleasant or doesn't smell bad. You know, our product with, a, you know, n- not an unpleasant smell. Now, so that would not be, doesn't sound like it's misleading um, you know, it doesn't differ, but it's not the exact claim that's on the label. Now, if you revise that to not a harsh chemical, gentle, and, you know, soft for use, then you may be getting into the area of, well, the claim that was approved was no harsh chemical odor or fumes. I'm now saying my lawful paraphrase is, not a harsh chemical, gentle, and softer use, EPA may consider that paraphrase to be a misleading claim and that it misleads or leads you to believe the chemical may be safer than other chemicals. So that wouldn't be a lawful paraphrase. All right, so let's get into non-labeling. First, to understand what is included in non-labeling, we have to look at the definition of labeling under FIFRA. So FIFRA defines labeling as the label plus written materials that accompany the pesticide at any time or written materials referred to within the labeling. So I'm sure you're noticing that the word labeling is in the definition of labeling, and the reason for that is just to say that uh, if labeling references non-labeling material, that non-labeling material becomes labeling. So you can think about this as two buckets. What comes with the pesticide, uh, the label and the labeling that accompanies the pesticide, and then everything else. But the labeling that comes with the pesticide 
can pull material out of the other bucket by referencing it. So if we have an SDS that comes with the uh, with the pesticide, and the SDS says on it, uh, for more hazard information on this product, go to this URL, and it has the URL on it, uh, EPA would then consider that website to be labeling. All right, so we're, we're talking about labeling because EPA has stronger enforcement authority to address labeling, and we know that everything that is not defined as labeling is considered non-labeling, and there's weaker authority for EPA to enforce in this area, and we're going to get to that enforcement standard. Um, before we do that, we want to give you some examples of what non-labeling is. So it includes television, websites, you know, radio, magazines, so advertisements in a magazine, you know, an insert in a newspaper, a billboard, um, you know, highways or even in substations. You know, you'll see when you uh, enter a subway, there's a bunch of different posters on the wall. So those are examples of non-labeling at sporting events, concerts, you know, on the big screen. So all of these materials, uh, they don't accompany the product in commerce. And so they're actually not subject to the misbranding, false and misleading standard because they're not labeling. So we'll get to that standard. Um, unless, of course, the non-labeling is referred to in labeling. Right. And that's why we have an asterisk by websites uh, because registrants like to put their URL on the label and uh, EPA has been issuing cover letters that make it clear that their position is uh, that they believe websites, that if you put the URL on the label, then that website becomes labeling. That's right. And so let's get into the standard that EPA uses to enforce against non-labeling. Uh, FIFRA, FIFRA's misbranding provisions do not apply to non-labeling. Why not? Because instead, because the misbranding provisions are uh, deal with labels and labeling. Right. So that, that misbranding provision about false and misleading doesn't apply here. Right. Instead, EPA enforces using an unlawful act provision under FIFRA. We have the text here. Uh, it says, it shall be unlawful for any person to distribute or sell to any person any registered pesticide if claims made for it as a part of its distribution or sale substantially differ from any claims made for it as a part of the statement required in connection with its registration. And that's what you would have on your master label. Got it. So if we go to the next slide. So so the agency, you know, they really want to connect your label to the website so they can say the whole website is labeling. Then if you have a claim in the website that might be slightly misleading, 
you know, false or misleading, they could enforce under the misbranding standard. But if it's not labeling, if there's no reference from, you know, your uh, label to the website, the website wouldn't accompany the product. It wouldn't be referred to in labeling, so therefore it's non-labeling. When you have non-labeling, EPA has to use the substantially differs test that John just read from the statute. That's their enforcement mechanism. And there's actually two parts that they have to prove in order to enforce in this area. First, you know, they have to show that the claims that you've made, let's say they're on your website, that they were made as part of the distribution or sale of the product. They then have to show that those claims are substantially different, not just differ, but substantially differ. Um, so with respect to claims being made as part of the distribution or sale of the product, the um, in the microband case, the EAB determined that what that means is either there's been an offer to sell the product in the advertisement or EPA has proved a nexus between the actual violative claim and the sale of the product, meaning that the purchaser was induced to buy the product by, you know, the the violative or claim. So, if if a registrant, you know, we've seen registrants put not an offer for sale on an advertisement, um, and if if they do this, EPA would have to prove that despite that disclaiming language, uh, the registrant really has made an offer for sale or that, as Mike said, the buyer has, uh, was induced to purchase the product as a result of the ad's claims. Exactly. So they would have to show that, and then they have to show that the claim that's made is substantially different or substantially differs from a claim that's been approved as part of the registration. So all of this is a lot more than just saying, hey, it's a little misleading. You know, your your claim seems a little off, as you know, I, I was mentioning with the odor control. Uh, it's not quite the same, and so that paraphrase is misbranding. You know, the, for non-labeling, they got a much tougher standard to meet. So if we go to the next slide, um, Substantially differs. They can't just say, well, it differs. It's not the same as the claim that you got approved on your label. They have to show that the claim is substantially differs. We don't have good guidance from EPA on what exactly substantially differs right. means. Right, right. And if we look at the regulation, uh, it really just restates the statutory language with slightly more specificity. So there's there's nothing there that EPA can go by, but Mike... Uh, right, 40, 40 CFR Part 168 is the regulation, B. right, and it's not really a regulation, it's just restatement of unlawful activity. So what does it mean, what are the existing interpretations of substantially differs? So there have been some administrative law cases wherein uh, the judges have tackled this issue, and... For example, in sporocidin, they didn't give a good definition, but, you know, they first looked at it and said, well, it seems like it's an unapproved pesticidal claim, but it wasn't clear whether that meant it's not on the label um, or it's not part of the uh, registration of the product. So 
so there wasn't real specificity. We then got three additional cases where they they really told us clearly, black and white, these are claims that are substantially different. So in the Zymec case, we had a disinfectant for hospitals that was advertised for use in ambulances. And the court said that's a use pattern that substantially differs from the label. It's unapproved. Therefore, that's a claim that substantially differs. So if your product is approved for outdoor use and you're advertising it for indoor use, that's clearly going to be a claim that substantially differs. Um, same thing with, with any additional use pattern that's not on your label. The GermPro case um, was a good example of a public health product. So uh, when you make public health claims, you got to submit FC data, you got to get it approved on your label. If you don't have it on your label and you make an additional non-approved public health claim, like kills E. coli and you've got salmonella on your label, that's clearly a claim that substantially differs. So the third case, we've had a, there's a variety of cases, and EPA mentions this in their guidance, where they say heightened efficacy claims um, are substantially different claims. So to the extent that your product says, you know, it's good long-lasting or good control, and you make a quantifiable difference or make a claim that includes a quantifiable difference, like 99% control or kills all, um, kind of absolute statement heightened above what's been proven on your label, then that substantially differs. So we've got three clear-cut examples, and things get a little more uncertain than when we got to Leafatech. So a recent case um, litigated out of Region 5, and there the judge, and this is an ALJ case, so it's persuasive, not binding, but there the judge looked at uh, unapproved claims, and um, there's some language about them not being on the label in some form. Not clear what some form means, um, but they also mentioned that comparative competitive claims, so comparing my product to my competitor's product, um, that that could be a claim that substantially differs. Even if I just say, you know, my active ingredient is better than your active ingredient or, you know, works in a different way or maybe is a better value, uh, the judge took the position that those comparative claims could constitute substantially different claims. So, but, but, so Leafatec created some uncertainty. I think we've got three clear-cut cases and all of this shows that the agency's got a lot to prove when they look at claims in non-labeling. So they have to, you know, argue that it substantially differs and also show that it's part of sale or distribution. You know, two different standards. And, and so for non-labeling, EPA's jurisdiction is much weaker than it is over labeling. And, you know, actually the FTC has arguably stronger jurisdiction for non-labeling. Right. So FTC has greater authority because it, it regulates all advertising. Um, the standard under which it operates is it regulates, it, it's looking for and can enforce against deceptive advertising, which is false or misleading advertising. Uh, ultimately, that's that's a lower burden of persuasion 
but um, we we say that it may be easier to prove uh, only because uh, FTC doesn't go after small nitpicky claims. Uh, FTC weights and enforces against big ticket items. Yeah, they're more. It's more high pro, higher profile. So you you may see, you know, you do see EPA um, transferring or forwarding non-labeling enforcement matters to the FTC because FTC has a little stronger um, uh, reach. Um, so they will do that. The the thing about the FTC though is that they are looking for because they have to regulate non-pesticides as well as pesticides. They can't get involved with every single, you know, as you mentioned, small matter. So EPA may is more apt to bring these, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollar penalty cases uh, for non-labeling, um, you know, than FTC. FTC goes for the big ticket stuff. So the takeaways for this discussion. Uh, the first is that, you know, we, we talked about the standard for labeling. EPA has more authority there. They have less, arguably less authority to enforce for in the non-labeling area. But EPA has taken the position that if you refer, because of that definition of labeling, you know, labeling is all your materials that accompany the pesticide, so SDS, you know, your posters, anything at point of sale, your sell sheets. The labeling also includes any other advertising that you refer to in your labeling. So if you got your website URL, you know, on your label or in your labeling, then those materials can be considered labeling. And so uh, the first takeaway is, don't link your labeling to non-labeling because then you're uh, ostensibly um, giving EPA greater authority to regulate the non-labeling. Um, and the standard for non-labeling is, you know, this two-part test. So they have to prove that the claims substantially differ and that they were made as part of the sale or distribution of the product. You know, more, they have to prove more than just it's a false or misleading uh, claim. Uh, so the FTC has stronger authority over the non-labeling. You know, they have the false or misleading standard, as John mentioned. But as a, uh, a general precautionary um, uh, position on all of this, you have to have substantiation for all of your claims. So that means data supporting all your claims is required. Even those on your label that you've gotten approved at EPA, you need uh, data in-house to support as well as, you know, your advertising claims on something that's not on your label, like in labeling or non-labeling non advertising, TV, radio, et cetera. Um, we, um, we advise you to have substantiation for all of those claims. So I think we have some time for questions, but first we just wanted to show our other uh, 3030s. We've got an OSHA 3030 coming up on May 30th and a TOSCA 3030 coming up next week on May 9th. So if you want to send in your questions, uh, 
have a few minutes to answer them here. We'll just, we'll just wait on that. Yeah, and with respect to getting your label claims approved, you know, you do have to, even if you don't submit data to EPA to get the approval, you have to have data in-house. So we see often Me Too registrants will copy a competitor's label and get the product approved and then just assume that, well, if our competitors said that made this claim, now, when you go to Me Too, you have to have exact same label, exact formulation, exact data. And so they copy the label identically with all the marketing claims and assume that because the competitor said the product will do X, that means it will do X. That is not a lawful defense to an enforcement action. So you need substantiation data uh, even if you have a Me Too product for all of your claims. Now, sometimes substantiation data can be just science literature. Other times, it's got to be actual controlled studies. All right, so it looks like we have a question here. So what are the guidelines around providing technical information on a product that is pending registration? That's a really good question. So, um uh, it, it's hard to tell exactly what the, if you can go back to that, um, what exactly, so there's a couple points here. One is that um, if your product is pending registration with EPA, you actually cannot be advertising it technically because the definite, what FIFRA states is that you cannot sell or distribute a product until you're registered, unless you're exempt. And sell and distribute includes offer to sell, uh, which presumably is uh, includes advertise. So um, there's some uh, discussion of this in the preamble to the one to the rule at Part 168. And so you can you can make kind of these. Um, I mean, there's a little risk in doing it, but you can say coming soon. You know, not an offer for sale, um, but uh, there is some potential for risk there. So you need to wait until you're registered before you're actually out on the market in public um, advertising the products. Um, so with respect to can you make claims about that technical information that's related to the product but maybe isn't on your master label? You know, I, I think, uh, let's say it's in the red, and let's say it's just, you know, glyphosate is a certain color, or glyphosate is a type of active that has been around X years, or as long as that information is not, doesn't relate to efficacy and safety, um, if it's not on your label, you could argue it's part of the registration statement, and if it doesn't imply something that's false or misleading within the 156.10 regs, it's, um, you're probably uh, in good shape there. But, you know, keep in mind, you got the substantially differs and false and misleading um, prohibitions to deal with. All right, so next question is, are links within a website considered labeling? For example, the label includes a reference to www.abc.com. Are all sublinks also labeling? Great question. Um, so first, let's revisit if the label or labeling 
that come with and that that's materials that come with the pesticide if they refer to the website then the website is labeling and that's a great question EPA has considered the entire website to be labeling uh, after that one reference is made so yeah. so you risk it, having that whole domain then be considered labeling right and we could talk about this this is that we could talk about this for a long time uh so EPA's put that position in their cover letters and said, you put the URL on your label, we consider the whole website to be labeling. Where you look at the definition of labeling, it, it refers to, it says anything that accompanies the product or is, or a reference is made in literature to. And so the question is, is the URL on the product label, is that, does that constitute a reference to and is it a reference to the entire web page if you have your URL? I mean, I could argue that, well, the URL is just an identification piece of information, kind of like your company name and address and telephone number. It's just there to go find out if there's problems. Now, if you set on your label, please see our website for more information about this product, then maybe that is that's more strongly considered labeling. So the the point I'm making is EPA takes this position. You know, there's arguments against it. It's not entirely clear, but there's risk given that EPA believes that your whole website is labeling. Okay. So that's all we have time for? Well, we have one other question very quickly. So uh, DPR has made the made it known that they're checking websites for compliance. Is that acceptable, even if the URL is not on the label? So DPR and EPA have the authority to scrub websites. They do it all the time because it's an easy way to check compliance. And so EPA obviously has the substantially differs if it's not, if the website is not labeling. They, that's their lens for enforcing. DPR has a false and misleading provision that goes to advertising in the California Food and Ag Code. So DPR actually has stronger authority uh, to regulate pesticides registered with the state of California. Now, if, you're, if your website says not for sale in California, not yet available in California, you are not selling and distributing in California if you haven't registered there, just yet, and so you could advertise in the other states and exclude California. That's a good way to, to get them out. So last question, what if it's EPA registered but not registered in all the states? So that's kind of uh, tangential to what, um, what uh, I was just talking about. So once you get registered with EPA, uh, you then have to register in all 50 states. 48 states usually go quickly. New York and California take longer. And so can you roll out your product on your website and start advertising it if you're not registered in New York and California? And the answer is yes, if you're not making an offer to sell it into New York and California. So if you put on your website not an offer for sale in California and New York or not yet available, California, New York, or whatever state it is that you're not registered in. I mean, I would advise listing the states, to be clear, 
you know, saying, well, we're not yet registered in some states, that may not be strong enough. All right, so that's it for today's session. Uh, we look forward to talking to you on our next FIFRA 3030. Thank, Thank you. you.